next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing kind of a, it's not really a sermon series, but we're going to kind of looking at thematically. Next week, we're going to look at the tomb. Uh, that's going to be the title of the lesson, At the Tomb, and we're just going to go to the tomb. What, what, does, what does the resurrection have to teach us? And then this week, we're going to spend some time at the cross as we get ready for Easter, and uh, certainly we celebrate God's uh, what he did at the tomb and the resurrection. We celebrate that, but we also celebrate what God did for us at the cross, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we get to the cross, in Matthew chapter 8, we have this story where Jesus goes into this village called Capernaum, and something amazing happens. This centurion asks for help. Now, you might say, what is, what is so amazing about a centurion asking for help? Well, first of all, we don't get the cultural context a lot of times. Sometimes when we, we read Scripture, it's like, well, what does this mean? And we just kind of skip over it. But this is, significant. this is no small deal that a centurion is asking for help, first of all, and more importantly, that he is asking it from a Jew. But somehow this centurion has gotten the idea that not just any Jew, but Jesus in particular might be able to help his servant who is sick. And so the centurion says to Jesus, he comes to Jesus, he says to Jesus in verse 6, Lord, my servant, even acknowledges that he is Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Now Jesus is quite impressed by this. Here is a centurion not only asking for help, but who cares about his servant. And so Jesus responds to him, and he responds with a question. Jesus says, shall I come? Shall I come with you and heal him? And the centurion says to Jesus, Lord, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes, and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. This centurion seems to recognize the power and authority of Jesus better maybe even than his own disciples do at this point. And for that reason, Jesus, or verse 10 tells us, Matthew tells us, that Jesus, when he heard this, was amazed. Now don't just skip over that, because there's only two instances in the entire New Testament where we have it recorded that Jesus was amazed. One, he was amazed at a lack of faith. And this one, he is amazed at the amount of faith. He's amazed at the faith of a Roman centurion, no less. In fact, Jesus goes on to say to those who were following him, truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. But man, he should have. He should have. He should have seen that kind of faith amongst the Israelites, Jesus' own people. He should have seen that kind of faith growing amongst his own disciples, those who had followed him and put their trust in him, but instead he finds this kind of faith in a Roman centurion. And in response to the centurion's faith, Jesus says to him, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very moment. Now again, I think we miss some of the significance and the impact of this story because we're reading it through 21st century lenses. But a first century observer would be totally blown away by the fact that a Roman centurion would have faith. Because for the most part, centurions had very little interest in Jewish religious affairs. As long as the Jews were peaceful, they kind of kept to themselves, they didn't cause any trouble, they, the Romans didn't really care one way or another what the Jews did. On top of that, most Romans worshipped multiple gods. And so the idea that a, a centurion would have faith, it's too simplistic to have faith in just one God. I mean, I've got a God for this, I've got a God for that, I've got a God for this over here. 
That's just too simplistic for the majority of them. But to this centurion, there seems to be a different reality. And in fact, for pretty much every centurion we read about in the New Testament, there seems to be a different reality. We, we don't have many stories about centurions. We, we don't have many of them in the New Testament. But the ones we do, actually most of them end up pointing or being drawn toward faith in Jesus Christ. And the other ones that we have, uh, at the very least, are helping or protecting other believers in Jesus Christ. In fact, it is a Roman centurion who makes quite perhaps the most impactful, significant confession of faith in the entire New Testament. We'll find his words in Matthew chapter 27, verse 54, but we're going to back up a few verses and get some context. At this point, Jesus is already on the cross, nearing the end of his life, and we pick up the story starting in verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, and he filled it with wine, vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. Yes, you're hearing me read that right. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him who were standing, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. It was a confession Peter should have made. In fact, Peter did make it earlier, but at this point, Peter is nowhere to be found. It's a confession that disciples certainly should have made. Most of them, though, were not at the cross. It's a confession even those who were at the cross should have made, and yet none of them made it. Instead, it's a Roman centurion of all people who makes this great confession of faith. But how is it that at the cross was all of this chaos, all of these things happening, all of these things going on, that it's a centurion who speaks the words that he speaks. And perhaps an even more important question, how did it change him? Did it change him? Did he just have a cross encounter? Or did he make a cross connection that would change his life? The answer to that question has eternal consequences for him, and the answer to that question still has eternal consequences for you and me. Now, to reach the rank of a centurion was a pretty noteworthy thing. The rank of centurion was the highest rank given to a non-commissioned Roman officer. Publius, who was a first century historian, tells us that for someone to rise to the rank of, his, of centurion, that person must have exceptional intelligence and exceptional stamina. And it appears that this centurion we're going to read about today indeed had both of those things. Now, the job of a centurion came with great perks, came with great pay, and it came with incredible job security. But all of that also came with a very heavy price. And that price was the desensitization to human suffering. 
Because you see, one of the tasks of a Roman centurion was to carry out the executions, just like this one of Jesus, to carry out the executions of Roman people, Roman criminals, not just Roman people, but Roman criminals that were deemed criminals by Rome, to carry out their execution as they were convicted and tried and then killed. Some of them were executed by flogging. Some of them were executed by crucifixion. Some of them, like Jesus, were executed by both. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie, The Passion of the Christ. You don't have to raise your hand. I'm I'm sure several of you have seen it. If you have seen that, I want you to imagine for a second. Even if you haven't, you can still read about this. I mean, you can read about the the events of the cross and events before the cross. I, I just think seeing it, if you've ever seen the movie, it hits different to see it, to, to feel it almost. And if you've seen the movie, do you, it's pretty gruesome. It's pretty vivid and visceral, just the beating that Jesus took, the pain and torture that he endured for you, for me. And I want you to picture that in your head, or if you've seen the movie, then, then you probably already have those pictures there. And I want you to imagine that being your job. That being what you see day in and day out, day in and day out. That being just another day for you. Witnessing that level of suffering and torture and pain. That was the life of a lot of centurions. Now, this centurion here in Matthew chapter 27, as far as we know, this wasn't his first rodeo. He's probably done a lot of executions, but it doesn't take long for him to realize this one is a little bit different. For one thing, it suddenly becomes dark, completely dark, like can't see the hands, your hands in front of your face dark. And it happens for three hours. Now, the text is a little vague. I know it says over all the land, but it's still a little vague as to how widespread this darkness is. But what the the text is not vague on is that it was clearly for three hours. And why that's important is because this is not just some natural phenomenon like a solar eclipse. Solar eclipses happen. They don't happen for three hours. In fact, the longest one recorded is seven and a half minutes. Three hours, that's a totally different ballgame. So what does that tell you? This is not just some natural thing that's happening. This is God directly intervening in these moments. God himself is intervening. Now, this is not the first time that God has intervened and brought darkness on the land. 1,500 years or so prior to this, the Egyptians had enslaved God's people, the Israelites, and God brings 10 plagues on the people of Egypt and the land of Egypt to convince Pharaoh to let his people go free. One of the plagues that God brought was that of darkness over all of the land of Egypt. And this darkness was a judgment on the Egyptian Pharaoh and on the entire nation of Egypt. And now God sends judgment or darkness again. And this time, his son is the one who bears that judgment. The very son of God, the light of the world, is descending into the darkness of death. Now, the centurion probably doesn't understand the symbolism, right, of all that's going on here. But he knows that he's never seen it go completely dark from noon till three in the afternoon before. He knows that. And then just as suddenly as it is dark, it is light again. And the centurion is listening as he hears the one on the center cross say these words at three o'clock in the afternoon. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, centurions have heard people, heard men cry out from a cross before. That's nothing new. They probably heard people 
cry out to their gods before. Again, that's nothing new. I'm sure he's heard more than a few people curse the gods before. Again, that nothing new. But he's never heard a cry quite like this. This cry isn't spoken in anguish, or excuse me, isn't spoken in anger, but it is spoken in anguish. Anguish of someone who is speaking to a God, his God, as if he has this real, dynamic, vibrant relationship with him, but now something has severed that. What the centurion doesn't know is that even in this moment, Jesus is fulfilling prophecy from Psalm chapter 22. Now, some hear this, hear what Jesus is saying, Eloi, Eloi, and they believe that he's calling out. They misinterpret it. They misinterpret it. They think he's calling out to Elijah. And they immediately think that's what Jesus is doing because there was this common expectation among Jews during Jesus' time that Elijah would return when the Messiah returned. In fact, there, there were um, many first century Jews who would save a spot at the table when they celebrated Passover, save a spot for Elijah because they believed that Elijah would come uh, when, when Jesus would come, when the Messiah would come. And at any rate, they think he's calling out to Elijah, but Jesus is calling out to Elohim. The centurion has also noticed that, uh, we don't read it here in Matthew chapter 27, we read it in, in other places in the Gospels, that when Jesus was offered uh, wine mixed with gall, something called gall, he refused it. Now, if you don't know much about that, don't, it's, you know, it's easy, again, to just read over some of the details, but wine mixed with gall was a concoction that was often used to dull the senses and to ease some of the pain from the crucifixion. The combination was also oftentimes used to assist in ending that person's life, which would also end their suffering, consequently, sooner. But again, Jesus refused that. The centurion did, however, notice that Jesus drank a different kind of wine, a sour wine, which helped to quench his thirst, but also would have heightened his senses instead of dulling them. Then Matthew chapter 27 tells us that Jesus cries out again. Matthew doesn't give us the words here, but John and Luke do. In John chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished. And in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And with those words, Jesus breathed his last breath, and he died. Matthew chapter 27 tells us at that very moment, the veil of the temple was torn. And this veil, this curtain, separated the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. The holy of holies, that place where it was so set apart for the presence of God, where God's presence would come down, that only one person got to go in. And that one person could only go in one time out of the entire Year. And when he goes in, he's carrying the blood of bulls and goats, and he's making a sacrifice to atone for the sins of himself and for all of the Jewish people. But now that temple veil has been torn. By the way, that temple veil uh, is about or was about 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and about four to five inches thick. It's not the size of your shower curtain, just so you know. It is huge. And notice the text tells us that it was ripped from top to bottom. Why? To make sure that you know no human hands did this. Again, this is God himself intervening. The Hebrew writer explains the significance in Hebrews chapter 10. He writes, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, 
And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God. What a crazy concept. We can draw near to God. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And so let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. No longer will humans have to be separated from God. No longer will the blood of bulls and goats be necessary to atone for our sins and just roll them forward another year. No longer will it require a priest to go into the Holy of Holies to represent us because Jesus himself is our high priest. And he has gone before the Father on our behalf. And through his sacrifice and through his blood, he fully accomplished God's redemptive work on the cross for you. It is finished. Now again, And this moment, this centurion doesn't get all of this symbolism. But I will tell you what the centurion understands. He understands that all of a sudden the ground underneath him starts shaking. That gets your attention, right? But it's the weirdest earthquake that he's seen ever. Because Right where he is, the rock split, and yet just a few paces away, it doesn't appear to be affecting these three crosses at all in any tangible way. And there's no record of an earthquake in the very nearby city of Jerusalem. Yet the centurion looks over toward a cemetery, and the tombs are splitting open, and dead people are coming to life. Again, probably gets your attention. Can you imagine... And just put yourself in the centurion's shoes and having to take all this in and try and figure out what in the world is going on. Less than 24 hours prior, he'd been given the task of carrying out and um, exacting the execution of this Jew, Jesus. And since that time, he has watched Jesus being nearly beaten to death, then hung on a cross to die. And on the cross, he's seen Jesus see to it that his mother is taken care of. He's watched other people spit on Jesus, curse Jesus, mock Jesus. He's watched those two criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus join the others in cursing and swearing at him. However, one of those criminals changes his heart and his mind, and Jesus forgives him. He's seen darkness cover the land. He's felt the ground shake beneath his feet. He's seen dead people come to life. No, he might not understand all the symbolism. But he's seen enough to be brought to one inescapable conclusion. Surely, he was the son of God. Now, there are some who have tried to manipulate this language in the text here to say that it's plural, and he's saying he was a son of the gods. But the text is very clear. Surely he was the son of God. I also know that Luke quotes, if you read in in Luke, uh, as he records these events, he records the centurion as saying, surely he was a righteous man. And listen, Jesus was a righteous man. Although, let me also point out that in Mark's gospel, which was written before the other gospels, he has the same quote as Matthew. Surely he was the son of God, or this man was the son of God. But that being said, it doesn't mean they contradict each other. I think they're complementing each other. Both are true. Jesus was and still is a righteous man. Jesus was and still is the Son of God. Maybe the centurion said both. 
Maybe Luke is trying to emphasize the righteousness of Jesus and Mark and Matthew are emphasizing the deity of Jesus. At any rate, the real question ought to be for us, why is it the centurion that's having to say it? The religious leaders certainly aren't saying it. The disciples aren't even there to say it. And yet an unbiased observer who has no axe to grind one way or the other, he's the one who says the most profound words perhaps in all of Scripture, not spoken by God himself. Surely he was the Son of God. So go back to the question I asked at the beginning of the lesson. What happened after that? What happened to the centurion after this event? How did it change him? Did it change him? Did he just have a cross encounter or did he make a cross connection? Did he eventually become a follower of Jesus? Maybe this was a turning point in his life. Maybe he saw what he saw, experienced what he experienced, and he surrendered his life to Jesus Christ. It wasn't just a confession. It was a turning point that changed the rest of his life. And for the rest of his life, he was a follower of Jesus Christ. Or maybe he went home and he told his wife and kids what happened. They said, what were you drinking? And he convinced himself the next day that it never happened. And life as he knew it, went on the same as it had the day before and the day before and the day before. So what happened? I don't know. Here's what I do know. It would be absolutely tragic to see what he saw, to hear what he heard, to feel what he felt, to experience what he experienced, and to say what he said with his own mouth, and then to go home and not let it change him. Let me also say this. It would be equally as tragic for you and me today to hear what we've heard, to see what we've seen, to experience what we've experienced, and for many of us to say and sing with our own mouths that he is the Son of God, and it not totally transform us. You see, ultimately, you decide what happens next. Not for him, but for you. And make no mistake, a decision must be made. We all meet at the cross today. The question is, is it going to be just a cross encounter? Hey, glad I came. Yay. Check that off the list. Or is it going to be a cross connection? Either way, I'll tell you this. It requires a cross decision. Because the cross always requires a decision. The question is, what will your decision be today?